it you suffer with chronic pain? Are you taking risky over-the-counter or prescription anti-inflammatory drugs? Well, there's a better natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals, liquid turmeric liposome complex. Future Farm's liquid turmeric with liposomes and nanotechnology delivers maximum absorption for effective pain relief. Sourced and manufactured in the United States, this product contains 1,600 milligrams of curcumin and powerful antioxidant properties. This plant-based curcumin has been shown to reduce inflammation, block proteins that trigger swelling, and intercept inflammatory pathways, significantly decreasing inflammatory responses. Future Farm offers some of the most innovative products I've seen in quite a while. I use them, prescribe them in my practice, and I'm proud to recommend them to you. For more information and to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's myfuturephafarm. Myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman Liquid Turmeric Liposome Complex is all natural, science-based, and works without adverse side effects. Myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to talk about uh, a wonderful new book entitled Brainwash. Uh, you heard me recently talk to Dr. David Perlmutter. Well, he's one of the authors of Brainwash. Uh, he co-wrote the book with his son, Austin Perlmutter, also an MD. Uh, and we have Austin on the line with us to talk about Brainwash, subtitled Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. Uh, Dr. Perlmutter has uh, uh, recently completed his training in internal medicine. He's board certified. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami. He did his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he was uh, instrumental in writing this book, Brainwash. Welcome, Austin. It's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, okay, well, uh, this is uh, really interesting because uh, it's a father-son collaboration. Uh, I've known your dad for a long time. I've interviewed him about uh, his many books, uh, including um, uh, The uh, uh, Grain Brain, which is one of his major bestsellers. Uh, you decided to collaborate uh, with him on a new book. And uh, I think Brainwash uh, really bears your imprimatur because uh, it's a different kind of book. It's, uh, yeah, it's about nutrition. It's about uh, supplements. Uh, it's about uh, diet. Uh, but it's also a more of a profound reflection uh, on our modern lifestyles and how uh, modern civilization uh, and things that are happening these days are really changing our consciousness. Is it that that's your uh, imprint on this book? Because it, it seems to be an interest of yours. Well, certainly where the book eventually came out was a result of both my father and my, um, I guess, interests. And then the collaboration, which created through somewhat of an emergence, some new ideas. But I would say, to your point, my dad has written these wonderful books about these specific subjects, whether that's the microbiome or carbohydrates, gluten, and its role in our health and our brain. I haven't spent decades training in nutrition. And while I think that dietary interventions and nutrition interventions are certainly fundamental in helping people to achieve optimal health, 
my question is the bigger picture of why isn't it that people are doing something, right? Um, and as it relates to nutritional advice, it's a wonderful situation if you have a patient come to your clinic who says, I don't know what to do, help me, and I'm willing to do whatever it is you say. But I see this major gap when it comes to follow through. And this is really where my dad and I got incredibly interested because we'd like to believe in this paradigm where the only problem that a patient has is knowing why they need to make those changes. Where if a patient who was overweight, had diabetes, had hypertension came into the clinic and you told this person, hey, you really need to make these changes. You need to eat less refined carbohydrates. You need to start exercising that they would say, oh, I didn't realize that was what I needed to do. And if you said, if you don't do that, you're going to wind up with significant morbidity and potentially early mortality, they would say, oh my goodness, I never knew. But the bottom line is that just isn't the case. When you look at people who have had some of the most intense medical problems, something like uh, the need for a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass graft surgery that literally requires the cracking open of the chest, they still don't stick to the recommended lifestyle changes after the fact. And what winds up being the case is that we as doctors then blame our patients for the lack of willpower for following through on the necessary medical interventions. And to take this one step further, um, you know, you'd think that cardiologists, if not the cabbage patients, would stick to the dietary recommendations that they endorse for their patients. And what you find is that even a smaller percentage of cardiologists actually eat the stuff they're recommending to their patients. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. But the question as to what I'm interested in and where my um, kind of background and academic focus funneled into this book is I think we need to get past these. Well, I think it's important to to labor over the technical details of what people need to be eating, exercising, doing with their time. I think we need to get to the meta question of why is it that when they know what to do, they're not doing it anyway. And I think that that's a lot of what my dad and I tried to put into this book is understanding how our brains are either being wired for good choices or wired for bad choices. Uh, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about is sort of the gap between uh, knowledge and implementation. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there uh, saying that uh, our brains are being hijacked. Uh, and that's actually one of the, the main theses of, of your book. Uh, so how is modern life uh, changing our consciousness uh, potentially for the worst and, you know, getting in the way of our better angels? Sure. I think it's helpful to think about what exactly are the choices that we make? What do we define as a conscious choice versus what is a choice that occurs in the unconscious? And habit researchers have shown us that about 40, maybe a little higher than 40% of the time, we're actually engaging in these unconscious habits. So what is an unconscious habit? Well, you don't maybe think about going into the bathroom and starting to brush your teeth. You just kind of do it. It doesn't require a lot of conscious control. Similarly, you could find yourself driving down the street and responding to traffic lights, not because you were thinking, do I need to go when it's green and stop when it's red, but because those things are programmed into your brain. So as it relates to these habits, we've got to ask ourselves, how is it that they're started? And if you look at how habits can be programmed, well, we can do it ourselves um, intentionally trying to wire positive habits, we can allow them to just happen as a result of our environment, meaning these things incidentally came up due to our exposure to our environment, or they can be programmed by other people. 
And so these are situations where we have a queue, in this case, let's say a sign going off outside your favorite donut restaurant that prompts you to an action that enables you to reach a reward. So in this case, the sign goes off, you pull into that parking lot, you order the donut, that's the action, and then you get the reward, which is eating that donut, which activates your dopamine system and gives you some short-term pleasure. But you may not have been conscious of this happening. So this, I would say, is an example of how other people have wired our brain for an unhealthy decision-making, and this relates to the fact that we as humans have a natural propensity to enjoy sugary foods. And the reason for that is, if you think back to humans living before modern society, you know, sweet foods were generally the types of foods that gave us extra energy. That's how we built up our calories for the winter time. So again, to, to answer your question, I look at this as a hack into or a hijacking of our neural circuitry. We have a natural desire to eat sugary foods. A company knows that they can hack into that and make us continue to engage in this habit loop time and time again. And so we wind up not even questioning what it is we're doing, instead responding habitually and leading us eventually to engage in these behaviors that are quite disastrous for our health. So that again is a, an unconscious habit loop. But Also, our conscious decisions are being led astray because we feel, for example, a need to be part of a crowd, be part of a a group. This is something that in the past, again, has led to our survival as a species. We have somebody to back us up, somebody to look over our shoulder so we're not getting eaten by the saber-toothed cat or attacked by somebody from the neighboring tribe. So we have a natural propensity to reach out and be around other people. So if we're feeling lonely, if we're feeling like we want to spend time with other people, now companies have created social media such that we can say, here's what I want to do to engage with other people. And maybe initially you have this conscious desire to engage in the lives of others. So you download one of these apps. The problem is over time, we have to ask ourselves, what is this doing to our brains? And it's very clear that a lot of the time we're spending on social media We're not really getting that deeper social connectedness, which is what we initially had the thought that we were trying to engage in. And now it again becomes this unconscious loop where we're kind of sequentially throughout the day without thinking much, pulling out our phones, checking our accounts, checking how many likes we've gotten. That really takes us away from some of the more meaningful stuff in life. On a a more serious note, it also causes us to engage in uh, tribalistic behaviors where we get siloed into these different groups, whether that's on social media, on your computer, on your phone, or even when you're watching something like modern day news that attempts to polarize us against other people. That engages these also programmed behaviors, which is the need to respond to and belong to a tribe. But in the long run, that can damage our ability to relate to other people, as well as activating stress responses that make it harder for us to just have lives of wellness. And and a lot of what's happening uh, in social media, I mean, all you have to do is go to Twitter, uh, is it really engages uh, the emotions, uh, anger, fear, uh, envy. uh, And so, you know, in your book, uh, you talk about the... um, uh, so the dichotomy between the prefrontal cortex, the 
judgment, the judgment part of the brain, the mature part of the brain, the part of the brain that helps us make rational decisions versus the uh, amygdala uh, and other parts of the brain that are associated with the limbic system. Uh, you know, emotional responses, anger, fear, uh, you know, basic uh, self-preservation, appetite, uh, addiction. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, our brains are being washed or certainly subverted by just the whole nature of our, our society. Well, I like to think about the brain as an incredibly intelligent device that through neuroplasticity reacts to become as good as it possibly can in the environment. So what I mean by that is, let's say you're living a couple hundred thousand years ago and you happen to be living somewhere that there are a lot of predators. Well, if you're constantly exposed to predators, you're constantly going to be activating the fight or flight center of the brain, which is the amygdala, which is probably a good thing because you need to be in a state of hypervigilance so that you can escape from that predator that might be hunting you. Your brain will respond to that and it will change such that you are always pumping out cortisol, always pumping out norepinephrine and ready to go at a moment's notice. That is not a long-term survival mechanism. That's something that is going to enable you to hopefully escape the next couple of weeks and maybe move somewhere that's a little bit safer. But you look at how that balance has shifted in the modern day. We're no longer faced with threats for our, our actual safety and for survival, but marketers and the modern world in general knows how to activate that same center in the brain. So when you're watching the news and you see that little line along the bottom saying, breaking news, the world is about to end, it's the same part of the brain that is being activated. So your brain doing what it's supposed to do thinks, okay, I live in a dangerous world. Mm -hmm. I need to be in high alert all the time. And now a word from our sponsors, <laughs> you know, because you're, while you're <laughs> riveted to the screen uh, and that uh, attention that they've engaged, uh, you know, with clickbait headlines uh, is suddenly transfer transferred to, uh, you know, a car uh, or, uh, you know, a pizza place uh, or fast food eatery, uh, you know, or in some cases, we see a lot of this on TV, uh, you know, a medication that might help you. <laughs> Yeah, it's clear that humans under chronic stress make worse decisions because chronic stress dissociates the prefrontal cortex from the amygdala. The top-down control that the prefrontal cortex gives us in calming down our more impulsive side is literally lost. And I think when I first saw this research, I was just blown away. But when they look at these animal models and look at what happens in the neurons when these animals are exposed to chronic stress, you see that these neurons in the prefrontal cortex wither. They shrink. All the branches that connect one neuron to the next, they literally curl up and die. And if that wasn't bad enough, what happens in the amygdala when it's exposed to chronic stress? Well, it's like pouring miracle Grow on it. You see that these branches mm -hmm. get stronger, these connections get stronger, because, again, this is the part of the brain that is expected to take over when we're exposed to chronic stress. So you think about what that means. If you're exposed to chronic stress through your work, through your relationships, through your exposure to digital media, you're now going to be living your life from this more aggressive, impulsive, reactive part of your brain. And of course, your choices are going to reflect that. Now, is there a potentially a dietary uh, component to that? Because, you know, sometimes I see, you know, reports of uh, mass shooters, you know, these uh, teenage kids 
uh, sometimes who do the school shootings, and I go, gee, I wonder what their essential fatty acid status is. I wonder if, when was the last time they've had, uh, you know, a piece of salmon, uh, or, uh, you know, what's their, what are their magnesium levels like? Uh, Absolutely. You know, it, it, is this, I mean, uh, you're, you're obviously steeped in neuroscience, your dad being a neurologist and you being a recent, uh, graduate of internal medicine residency program. Um, what, what does the science tell us about how the brain changes when it's malnourished, when it subsists on junk food? There is so much to discuss with regard to this, and I think that this science is going to continue to expand and reveal new information, but we do know a lot now. And I'd say, you know, to take the listener back a little bit here, the question as to how does the state of our bodies affect our brains, affect our thinking, affect our emotions, is something that people have been puzzling over for a long time, but we've kind of known that there is this connection. So when I'm in my medical training and I'm in the ICU, I see that so many people are completely out of it. They're disoriented. We call this delirium. And researchers have shown that this delirium is associated with levels of inflammation, which makes sense because people who are really sick tend to be a little out of it. And you may have seen when you're sick, when you have the flu or a cold, mm-hmm. you just don't think that you're... You feel brain dead. I mean, it's like... Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. We I'm kind not, of I'm know that. I'm not going to get on the air and, and conduct an intelligent interview. I'll... I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll call in sick. <laughs> it's exactly it. So again, kind of intuitive that we know there's some sort of connection there between sickness and our thinking. But to, to take that a step further, researchers then said, well, what's the connection between mood and the state of our bodies? And they found this really powerful, consistently uh, developed uh, conclusion, which is that inflammation leads to symptoms of depression. So it's not just that people who have depression have higher levels of inflammation in their blood, which they do. But when you give somebody a uh, kind of induced inflammation, either by giving them something like LPS, which is a part of a bacterial Mm -hmm. cell, or something it's an like experimental way of inducing uh, uh, inflammation. Or yeah, the people who took uh, a classic example is the people who took uh, interferon. Uh, that used to be a treatment for uh, hepatitis C. And you know, we would tell these patients, you know, you're gonna, you, you know, you got to really be careful because you may have some profound mood change. Expect to feel kind of depressed, right? <laughs> That's exactly it. And they said there's this connection here. Some doctors would say. All my patients on interferon are a bit depressed. That's kind of weird. And it's only in the last little bit that we've seen that when you give somebody a short-term boost of inflammation through, as we said, LPS, or even giving them something like a typhoid vaccination, which induces the short-term inflammation in the blood, they basically experience depression, all of those cardinal symptoms of depression. So now you have a mechanism whereby inflammation induces depression. So we've got to then ask, well, what is it in our lives that seems to be one of the major sources of inflammation? And as you already said, it's our food. What are we doing with our food that either increases or decreases levels of inflammation? And how does that secondarily affect how we think? And uh, I've been really inspired to see that now there are these trials where they put people on either a healthy diet or let them continue on with a standard American diet. And they've shown that rates of depression or depressive symptoms actually decreased in this trial when people were eating healthier foods. We're talking about lifestyle. You know, other factors besides diet uh, uh, modulate brain function. Uh, What are the effects of sleep deprivation, which is epidemic? You allude to that in the book. 
That's such a good question. Uh, and as you said, it is a major problem where we see around one third of Americans are consistently sleep deprived and a large part more than that or a lot more than that are getting inconsistent levels of good sleep. You know, uh, when we were in our medical training, as I'm sure you mm. can relate, they yeah. looked at sleep as a secondary thing that you could do if and when everything else was taken care of. And mm. it was always the case that the trainee that was uh, showered with praise was the trainee that got right. there first thing in the morning and left before, uh, last thing. That's kind um, of a machismo thing during medical absolutely. training. It's like, yeah, I was on a call last night. I, uh, you know, I slept a half an hour. Uh, right. And, and you're, you're still the, the top of the heap because you are willing to sacrifice this inferior activity, which is sleep, which is just you only do it for your pleasure, right? Wasted time. In order to be yeah. productive. Um, but, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of decades is that not only is getting enough sleep linked to better health outcomes and everything from cardiovascular disease to, um, I guess, glucose issues, specifically type 2 diabetes outcomes. But it turns out that you need to get enough sleep to be the best version of yourself from a cognitive perspective, that your memory is better, that your emotional reactivity is better, that you're less likely to make poor choices, which is why it's so crazy to me that we continue this paradigm of allowing our medical trainees to get poor sleep or to not prioritize sleep, given that you would you could argue the decisions made by doctors when they're looking after patients are some of the more decisions that are made in a given day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we used to call it uh, the witching hour. Some pretty uh, bizarre things happened around three in the morning. Uh, and then, of course, there's this uh, whole uh, student paradigm. You know, when you're studying, you're cramming, you know, you pull an all nighter. Well, what, yes. what do we know about memory consolidation when we uh, are sleep deprived? So I like to tell patients that sleep is important for your thinking in a couple of ways. But one of those ways is that it's essential for our memory consolidation. What seems to happen is that during sleep, specifically non-REM sleep, our information that's kind of short-term stored in the hippocampus gets sent out to the cortex to be placed in long-term storage. So when they do these studies on people where they even give them a short amount of sleep, they find their memory recall is significantly better than those who have been kept up. We've also seen in research that even one night of sleep deprivation, which is just, it is exactly the all-nighter, leads to worse emotional reactivity or higher levels of reactivity to other people. So what does that mean? It means that if you're trying to do well on a test and if you're trying to do well with other people, the best thing you can do for yourself is give yourself that seven to eight hours of sleep so that you're able to consolidate that information into your long-term memory and also so that you don't fly off the handle and yell at your friends and family members the next day. Or your patients. <laughs> okay, <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. Well, look, uh, we're, uh, we divide our podcast into two parts. So, uh, at this point, let's pause. Uh, but in part two, I want to focus a little, uh, on your medical training, uh, and your insights as a young physician on where the future of medicine is. Uh, medicine is, is certainly in crisis. And, um, you know, there's hope with thoughtful young physicians like yourself. Uh, but a lot of doctors uh, are finding medicine. Uh, very challenging field to to maintain maintain their professional orientation, uh, and we'll see where that's headed in the coming decades. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, he's co-author with Dr. David Perlmutter, his dad, 
of Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. It's a great book just out. Please get it. This is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.